series preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in a section now where the Lord Jesus is completing his earthly ministry. And as, as you know, you've read your Bibles before, uh, this is a very momentous time, and a good amount of space is given by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures to have us understand uh, the culmination, the fulfillment of so many things that were predicted of old of the Son of Man, and uh, his completion of his task in his, in his body. But then also, the blessing to those who followed him uh, and his call, and took up his cross and followed the Lord Jesus, believing upon him and receiving his blessing. And then, tragically, tragically, the very people of God, the covenant people of God, Israel, its leaders rejecting the Christ, uh, amounting to a rejection, a rejecting of the Lord himself. We need to understand this. We need to understand the goodness of God, the clemency, his great mercy and love, and uh, all grace to those who believe in him and trust and love him. But his, his wrath, his judgment uh, is against those who hate him and who abuse the covenant privileges. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 18. In the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Thus far, reading in God's holy and inerrant word, all flesh is as grass, its beauty is the flower of the field. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This is the word that was just read to you. By God's help, I'll be preached. Please be seated. You parents know the normal behavior, I should say the typical behavior of your children when they, Monday through Friday, go to school on the weekends, they go out there play, they eat, they eat their meals, uh, and uh, you know their habits, and so you characterize their behavior. When you see them acting as they do most days, you say, well, this seems to be doing all right. It's normal. We've been reading about the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry now for 21 chapters, and what we're seeing here is something that we hadn't seen in Jesus before. Upon entering Jerusalem, mounted on a colt, uh, of course, an emblem of humility, the, the most gracious and humble king had come the son of David had come, hallelujah, and uh, save now, O oh Lord. But then he, he proceeds to cleanse the temple, and he does so by overturning tables and money changers. And now This is unlike the Jesus that we had seen before. Uh, this behavior is, is rare. He never shown this kind of anger, at least not in public, and to the point of tipping things over, that's huge disruption 
That's why later in this chapter, we're going to see the authorities asking him, but what are you doing? Who sent you to do this? Who gave you the, the, the authority to behave this way and do these things in the temple? Jesus is acting uh, uh, not apparently not to his character. And yet we have to understand that this is his character. Not only will he topple the, tem uh, the temple uh, uh, abusers, but here he stands ready to do something altogether unusual. Now, Jesus has never done anything destructive. Uh, he is the Lord of life. He, he, all things were created through him and, and for him. He is with the Father and the Son, the author of life. And so we ought to consider it a strange work that Christ is doing as narrated in our passage. And indeed, the wrath of God is his strange work. You know, we read bad news in the, in the newspapers every day. But the most amazing thing is not that we have any bad in the world today, but because the world is fallen and full of sinners that aggravate God and, and, and rebel to his very face, the, the, real, the real news is that more bad is not happening. Well, God is gracious, and his covenant is, uh, his terms are good, but they are specific as to the terms of blessing and the terms of cursing. Jesus is acting, it seems, out of character in this passage because Israel is no longer is no longer enjoying that sweet communion with the Lord Jehovah. In fact, its leaders are set to now reject God himself. Jesus is Jehovah God in the flesh, and they will choose to kill the Prince of Life. And so we have a very, uh, a very busy week here, a very compressed week with all manner of events. And as you might expect, a lot of prophecy is being fulfilled in Jesus, and uh, also some prophecy is, is beginning to take place regarding the future of this nation. And with the cursing of the fig tree, what we see here is a prophecy regarding the future of Israel, the future of Israel. So that's the context. I'll, I'll fill it out a little bit more here. Jesus, uh, beginning here in chapter 21, has, has uh, given us a number of symbolic acts, uh, symbolic acts in that he is uh, your lowly king, uh, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee, comes to Jerusalem. He is the victor, uh, uh, and he is the one who is worthy of entering the city. That's a very symbolic act as he is mounted on, a, on the fall of a donkey. The other thing is the, the, the cleansing of the temple is a symbolic act uh, of, the, uh, of the, the fire uh, of God that cleanses. And that was, again, prophesied of the Old Testament that uh, Messiah would come. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And uh, who can stand the day of his appearing? He's like a, like a, uh, a cleansing fire. And now he gives us uh, another symbolic act. And uh, this symbolic act is the cursing of the fig tree. And you need to understand that Jesus, as a human, uh, when he ministered, he would get old, he needed rest. That night he spent uh, outside of Jerusalem. And um, as he woke up, he would have been hungry, and he's looking for uh, an easy meal. Of course, seeing the fig tree, he, he walks to it. Uh, so, but don't think that his hunger 
his hunger <laughs> did not prompt him to be disappointed physically with the fig tree. That's not what's going on. He was not, as we say today, he was not hangry. Uh, he was not angry because of, of deprived, being deprived of, of food. No, you know, he, keep in mind, he was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, and he overcame all temptations there. This is a very minor, uh, a very minor, minor trial for the Lord, yet he was hungry. He went to the fig tree. A very natural event, but we are given a supernatural and a symbolic meaning here in this event. So our teaching, our teaching is that uh, if you consider the whole of the, of the passage and the whole of the teaching, that Jesus explains how and why he did this. Uh, the teaching is that faith and prayer are essential for communion with God. Without faith and prayer, God's people break covenant with God, and they're judged, and they become cursed and not blessed. Now, I'm going to need to. I'm going. I'm going to need to be very careful as I explain this because it's not a matter of them having once been blessed by salvation and having lost salvation. No, it's, it's that they had enjoyed a certain relationship uh, as the covenant people of God, at least externally, all the ordinances, all the teachings, uh, all the blessings of the nation, as God certainly did have his elect seed, there were real believers in Israel. Uh, even the early chapters of Matthew point us out of of very, very gracious individuals that had great faith. Uh, nevertheless, the leaders, the leaders at this point are set to uh, dismiss the very choice stone, the very cornerstone of the foundation uh, of, of the temple of God, and they are to set it aside as useless. And so that's how they become cursed. That is to say, they lose the privileges and the blessings, external blessings in every way of being the people of God. Not that they lose their salvation if they are true saints in Jehovah. All right, with that caveat, let's go forward. First point is this, that Jesus cursed Israel. Why? Jesus cursed Israel for breaking God's covenant. This is, again, as I've mentioned, this last week of ministry in the flesh. This was a symbolic act, but it was a real act. In other words, he means to show forth a picture in doing this, but that doesn't mean that the curse did not really light on this nation. Of course, we know that in Adam all are cursed, and that is the default of all who do not go forward and receive the gospel. Even in the Old Testament, the gospel was pictured in so many sacrifices, and sometimes even directly said by prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, were very explicit, uh, Abraham believed. Uh, the promises of God, and uh, and it was kind of for him for righteousness. So anyway, this symbolic act was a was a real act, and it led to a real cursing. Jesus was not personally angry at this fig tree, um, and he did not fall into sin by temptation to eat. The fig tree actually represented Israel, and um, and the fig tree uh, uh, being graced by uh, external. Uh, blessings from their covenant God uh, prospered. The nation prospered. The fig tree, as uh, as, uh, as representing Israel, would uh, would leaf out and, pr and provide delicious fruit, which is good for consumption when you're hungry. And then also it would provide a dense shade, protection from 
the damaging rays of so much sunlight in that part of the world. So it was, it was a useful tree, and it was a, it was a good tree. Um, but here we see there has been a, a period of time, a period of time where the Lord, who is the, uh, the inspector of God's vineyard, would come, and he, he's not seen, he'd not seen the, the required fruit in his vineyard. He'd not seen the fruit that he is looking to see. Uh, and so this is a judgment, uh, and uh, it is a judgment for the, fruit, the fruitlessness of God's covenant people. Now, we have a, a section here in Jeremiah 8, I think alludes to some of this. Jeremiah 8, verses 12 through 13. Uh, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? That is to say, when they left God and they had pursued other idols. Was Israel ashamed when they did this? No. No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Uh, you would expect uh, if, if a man was caught in the act of adultery in the very act, and he was accused of it, he would blush because uh, his sin would be acknowledged. The idolatry of Israel was grave. They had followed other idols, other gods in public, and yet here they are unashamed, and they have no knowledge of how to blush. And so the Lord says, therefore they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will be overthrown, says Jehovah. When I would gather them, declares Jehovah, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Jeremiah 8, verses 12 and 13. I think that, I think that Jesus uh, strongly alludes to this. He must have had this in his mind, because not only did he not find fruit when he saw all the leaves and all that, he promptly cursed the, the tree, and it became withered. Cursed, meaning cut off. And quite literally, they were now the no more, no more people of God. And other, other prophets of old warned that his people would no longer be called that. Or when they were not, no longer called my people, they would become, again, my people. But without a covenant, you do not belong to God. And without an external covenant, uh, there's one that you can point to and, and you can say, well, here are the terms. This is what God has said. And this is what I must believe. I must hear this word and believe it. And uh, I must obey uh, out of love for him because he's my redeemer. Unless you have some kind of covenant you point to, you're, you're not under the people of God. You're not, in, you're not in the church. You're not under grace. And these people here as a nation, not individuals in the nation, but as a nation was to be cut off. The covenant with Israel, of course, had always included blessing, and everyone who doesn't like to hear about blessing, uh, we 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 want to we want to say that the Lord, uh, day by day, great is His faithfulness, and He is good to His people, and uh, and is to be blessed by it. However, as I just mentioned, His His strange work is judgment, and so the covenant with Israel had all, always included terms. Of blessing and cursing. Deuteronomy 11 uh, and verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, 
but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known, Deuteronomy 11. Of course, the commandment to obey includes uh, obeying all of the ceremonial rites that were pictures and, and types of Christ. So by obeying the law of the covenant of Israel, you were actually obeying to receive the gospel in picture form as, as it was displayed on altars and blood and, and burnt offerings and, and whatnot. That was the terms of the covenant. Those were the terms of the covenant. Uh, and, uh, but failing that, failing that, you default into the curse. As I mentioned before, the world is cursed in Adam. And the whole world outside of the covenant of grace is, is striving hard, and sometimes very, very hard, and very, very religiously to uh, uphold their end of the deal, to keep the, the ways of the Lord as far as their natural mind understands it or as far as their, their religion understands it. They're working furiously to be acceptable to God. And not only that, but they are revolting at the same time that God has already cursed the ground and cursed their line for their rebellion in Adam. And all the day long, they are protesting against God's discipline and God's judging them and the wrath of God that is poured against them. That's, that's the whole history of, of the world trying to overcome the wrath and the punishment of God by however means, by science, by medicine, by education, by savings, by investments, any number of comforts to escape what their conscience plainly tells them is the truth, that they are rejected of God and they are being punished. And that's why their, their lives are so miserable and why there's so much pain and shame. Anyway, the covenant, uh, the default position is the covenant of works. Now, the covenant was made with, uh, with Israel and people, souls had to receive it. So souls are saved one at a time in the Old Testament, just as it is today. Households will receive it. The, 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 the fathers uh, and leaders of, of households uh, were to keep the faith even as Abraham kept it within his, his family and his tribe and the nation as well. That was the covenant. It was a conditional covenant. And all covenants have terms of blessing and cursing. And so this is a conditional covenant Grace for faith and heart obedience, and otherwise the default is what you have in Adam. And that, those terms are very, very, very severe. So the fig tree, of course, having received the word of Christ, who is Lord over all, immediately, immediately withers and dies. And here's the point. I don't want to get into a whole lot of the eschatology today, but Jesus says you will never again produce fruit. Israel as a covenanted people of God is gone. Israel will never covenant with God along the terms of Mount Sinai again. If Israel is to be saved, they are to come into the new covenant, the new and everlasting covenant, all the prophets of old, all the Jewish prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them spoke of the new covenant, the glories of it, they were to be anticipating it. And so if they come back into covenant, it must be through the new covenant, and that new covenant is in the blood of Christ. And there is no other covenant besides that that will save. There's no other name on heaven and earth for, that brings salvation except the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the fig tree represented Israel, and uh, Jesus uh, symbolically and really cursed it 
for breaking God's covenant. This fig tree looked good. It looked prom- promising. I don't know the size of it. Uh, it. It must have been there for a while, though. Uh, this pig, fig tree looked good on the outside. Impressive, uh, and, and it represents, I think, a lot of the impressive architecture of the Temple Mount, uh, its pageantry, its sacrifices, the, the order of the Levites, its singers, the music, all the feast days, the consecration going up, uh, the zeal, the zeal of the, <laughs> of the zealots to, to guide the nation into uh, what they thought was holiness, the Pharisees and all of their uh, strict studies and scribes, all of this looks really, really good on the outside. And I, I, I have to think that if either you or I were to see a Pharisee as the disciples of Jesus saw them, that we would be very reluctant, we would be very loath to think that they were not holy men because they looked so great. And they were always doing religious things. All right? But the problem is, with all of this religiosity, the fig tree did not fulfill its purpose. It It is the most common thing in the world to have a form of godliness and deny its power. Uncircumcised hearts was the majority in so many years of Israel. That's why they had so many rotten years. It seemed like the nation, some, some authors have said that they, they couldn't maintain a, a good piety and, and sweet communion with their Lord, not even 50 years. There's no recorded, anyway, this what I've read, no recorded celebration of a jubilee because no, Israel couldn't go 50 years without messing up. That is a very sad commentary. But the problem is not their external order. It all looks good. It's the heart. It's the uncircumcised heart. They had no love for God. They had no love for his truth. They had no love for his people. And the proof of it is when God arrives in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't know what to do with him. No faith in his words. No real obedience of love. No interest in hearing of the Savior's teachings. And so, of course, Jesus is going to come to the table, to the temple, and he sees there's just plenty of compromised worship. There's plenty of impiety and ill treatment. This whole disregard for the Gentile world and their selfish self-absorbance uh, of serving themselves uh, efficiently in, in, in the, uh, the procurement of animals uh, right there at the temple grounds, it became a self-serving religion with no regard to their ultimate commission. That was to be a light, Israel was to be a light unto all nations. And the height of their impiety, of course, uh, is represented in their unrepented wickedness. John the Baptist came and he clearly spelled out that God demanded repentance of every soul. But so many people there regarded that as as not really relevant to their person. They didn't know that... Well, they couldn't really think of any sin that they needed to repent from. Which goes to show you, not only did they not know God, but they didn't know his law, although they were teachers of the law. Can that be? How can that possibly? How can that be? The heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked. And none of us understands this. But Jesus understood it. Jesus understood what was really going on here. Large Glossy leaves. Have you ever seen a fig tree in its health? 
It's the picture of tropical beauty, or at least neotropical beauty. Much promise, no fruit. Looked good, useless. Or as Dr. Piper used to say in seminary, it would burden, it was, it was a, an encumberer of the, war, of the earth. It would just take up nutrients in space. It would just take up real estate in the garden. Precious nutrients, water. Soak it up and then what? Just to be what? A display of prettiness but uselessness. Hypocrites. Hypocrites look great. Don't you know that... Don't you know that the movie industry has it all wrong? Devils don't wear red capes and forks. They don't have tails and horns. Devils are more likely to come to you in white capes and smiles. Hypocrites, whitewashed tombs that look so pretty, all arrayed in good order, but if you were to dig down, you'd find defiling bones. Don't go near that. You'll defile yourself at that gravesite. Israel as a covenanted people had failed. They had broken covenant. At least as God sees it, because the nation was represented by its elders. And that was the tipping point. Symbolically, then, as he judged Israel as God's as Israel's final and ultimate judge. He was the king, he was the prophet, he was the priest, and he is the judge of all the world, but he is here judging Israel because judgment had been threatened by John the Baptist already. All Jesus is doing is amening John the Baptist. John has said the root, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Look, the axe is no longer in the barn, and the blade has already been sharpened. And it's not, it's not it's hanging in there for a future use. Already we've taken it out. And that axe is already on the root of the tree. It's resting on it. And all the judge has to do is pick it up and in one good swing, sever the, 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 the root from the, the, the neutrifying, the, the, the life-giving root from, from the main trunk and the tree is cropped for death. John, Jesus, all the Old Testament prophets were ignored. All their teaching was compromised. They would receive the words of the prophets and they would throw them behind their back. And they were rejected. And because there was no faith and because there was no repentance, especially by its leaders, this all came upon not the fig tree, but the nation because of sin, because no love for God or neighbor. And that, my friends, is the very sum of God's law. That was the very, that, that God's law is necessarily annexed to his promises. And it will show you, it will show you whether you are in the way of life. Not that you will fulfill the law perfectly. No Jew ever really expected, even, even in the in Galatian heresy, I don't think anybody there in Galatia would be so foolish as to think that he would fulfill the, the law perfectly, but substantially. They thought they were good people. And perhaps some of you here think that you're, you're pretty good. You're pretty good, and you don't understand the perfection that God requires, and that God himself has sent his son for the very reason that he should work that perfection in your place, that his righteousness would be accredited to you, 
when you trust him as the Savior, as the righteous Son of God. And doing so, he would give you his spirit so that now with circumcised hearts, with the hearts of flesh, you might begin, you might begin to walk in a new newness of life along the law's ways. It's called the third use of the law. That's what was required, and that's not what was happening here with the people. Not at all, not, at least not with the leaders. Uh, he, cursed, he, he cursed the nation on Jesus' own authority. The Old Testament prophecy conf confirmed his kingship throughout all of his ministry, and the Old Testament prophecies already had confirmed all of his prophetic office. He was in perfect harmony with all that God had revealed to his nation in the scriptures. And, of course, authority was the main concern of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he shows by what authority he is able to cleanse the temple and come in and receive the praises of the infant children. He shows his disciples here how, how and where that authority is. It's of himself. Otherwise, that fig tree would not have withered. My friends, we need to be very much aware of hypocrisy. I think as you, as you grow in Christ and as you mature, you're going to be more and more aware of areas where you judge people too, too critically simply because you have not judged yourself critically enough. A hypocrite loves and has that one tendency. He uh, increases the guilt of others and he neglects to augment his own guilt. He just doesn't see that he's done so much wrong. But now others, oh, oh yeah, they, they're a great, great disappointment. Not himself. He's not disappointed himself. And if you were truly pious and standing before the Lord in your prayer and having sweet communion with him in reality, spiritual, spiritual rea uh, communion with his word and with his spirit, you would see that you, saw, thought, uh, you fail so much and you, you, fail, you fall far, far short and you would receive his correction and you would receive his word of repentance. So you are to beware of hypocrisy. That's what. That's what brought Israel down. Are you a sinner needing a savior? Yes, I, I'm more and more convinced that I need saving. Well, good. That's a healthy place to be, even as you are a Christian. You should be more aware that you need a savior now than ever before. Or are you righteous, needing no savior whatsoever? Or can you even point to any evidence of your faith in Christ? Can you show that you are in the way? Are you keeping the fourth commandment, for instance? Do, do, do you work tirelessly seven, seven days a week, or are you, are you wanting to hang up your bow and loosen its, its string and have some time to delight in communion with God? True communion with God. That's resting in Christ, availing of all that he is, taking time for your soul to delight in him and he in you. It will take time. That's why the Lord sanctifies one day in seven. The second point of the sermon, however, is this, that Jesus teaches you how the fig tree uh, withered. The question came from the disciples. They were amazed. This is Jesus' only destructive act uh, that is here uh, recorded for us. Um, and Jesus' answer uh, as to how, at first read, seems to see, it seems to tell you very much on the face of it. He's saying, here's how, they, here's how it all uh, withered away. Here's how that, that tree died on the face of it. First read, by faith, no doubting. Uh, if you have faith, you'll say to the same or, or another fig tree, uh, you'd be withered, die, whatever, be accursed, and it will be. That, uh, and we can accept that, but we need to, we need to go on and explain this. Um, again, he says, by faith, no doubting, uh, it will take uh, up this mountain and cast it into the sea. 
Now, again, I think this is symbolic language, not to get into too much allegory, but look, the sea has always been a place of, of, of chaos, of uh, the threat of, of, uh, of death. It has been the great enemy of, of God's people and, uh, and really against the creation. It butts up against the, the land, the populated world, uh, the hevel. And, uh, he, you know, uh, as such, by taking this mountain, well, let me get to that in a second. Uh, uh, I will say also that the cosmic sea and scripture has always been a, an emblem of evil. The evil and antichrist will emerge from the cosmic sea in Daniel 7, uh, verse 3, and in Revelation 13, verse 1. <clears throat> but Jesus cursed the fig tree, we have to say, by faith. He, he also was a man. He was... He is the final judge of Israel, but he's also a man. And so by faith, he, he curses the tree, knowing that it was what? God the Father's will that that tree be cursed. That is to say, as, an, as a symbol of Israel, Jesus knew that the time for Israel was up. Because he knew the scriptures. And he was living the scriptures, and nothing surprised him. And he knew his mission, and his mission was to deconstruct the Old Testament ceremonials and construct a new temple with his body and the spirit, etc. All of that was going forward. It was time. And by faith, Jesus saw all of this. And my friends, you need to read scriptures not only to learn uh, its, its meaning, but to be amazed how the Lord Jesus understood all of this. And because he understood all of the scripture, in fact, he was the author, he's sending his spirit the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He sends it forth and uh, in giving us the, the revealed will of God in Scripture. Since he is the author, he can be your help in understanding it. And he truly does understand it. Uh, and history will, again, attest the, to the verity of that. Uh, so he had true faith. And if you have true faith in what God is doing in the world, you will be able to do God's will and you nothing, nothing can resist it. If you know God's will, and you know it to be so, and you believe it, then, my friends, God will answer your prayer and amen with his own amen. Yes, I will do this. This is my will. Be it so. Jesus' answer then, however, needs to be filling out. He is working in these last days, in the last week, with much symbolic and prophetic material. And it takes some, some teasing out to understand more fully what he's doing. He's teaching much more here than just uh, knowing the will of God. He is teaching here a bit of what we call the, the study of the end times, uh, the eschatology, the last days, the study of the last days. With the passing of the, of the temple, the old creation order is that we're, the, the old world is being wrapped up and we have a new world that is uh, created and, uh, and is coming forth a habitation for righteousness, uh, where his saints, the God's saints, uh, will commune with him and enjoy him forever. So Jesus' answer uh, now has to be teased out a little bit more because he's dealing with more symbolic issues and, uh, and teaching here about the last days. Here's what he's saying. Uh, you have to, I'll put this in the form of a question. Does Jesus indicate when he's saying that this mountain uh, will be moved and cast into the sea. Is he, is he indicating the Mount of Olives? 
Or perhaps is he, is he uh, indicating the very Temple Mount, the Mount Moriah? Uh, if so, this is a heavy, heavy statement of the last days. Uh, we, we, we see from Zechariah 14, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain should be moved northward, and the other half moved southward, Zechariah 14 and verse 4. Now, I, I just lay that as a possibility, because he's, he's, he's emerged from Bethphage, he's going back on the on way to Jerusalem, and that mountain is the one that is in front of him. Does Jesus indicate the Temple Mount, the Temple, and its foundation? That's another question we have to ask ourselves. And this would be, of course, the fulfillment of, of the Davidic Covenant. Well, it's, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, and, and more especially, more lately, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, the son of David, as he's been termed, is a Davidic title. And the son of David is to sit forever on David's throne. This is, this is a huge encouragement to, uh, to the, the pious Jew who is anticipating the coming of, his, of the kingdom of God. But the problem is the scripture says that the son of David will also be rejected by men. He's the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders, which means the representative leaders, uh, elders of, of, of Israel. And the true Davidic temple then will be reconstructed. I'll, I'll read this uh, as the council there in, in, in Jerusalem explains the work of the church after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This, this is what is said about the nature of the kingdom going forward by the apostles at the first ecumenical council there in Jerusalem. After this, he's quoting scripture, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind, that is to say the Gentiles, may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Jesus is right on track with believing all of the scriptures. He knows that the Gentiles will now be pouring into the temple. And as long as that old building is there, he wants to make sure that the, the Gentiles have a space for them to pray. Because one day they will have a tremendous inpouring of the Gentiles into Zion. And that is what the church is doing today in its great commission unto all the world. The true Davidic temple is the body of Jesus, the church, and is being reconstructed. This is preparing for the new covenant. You can read the old covenant anticipation of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Um, the Lord will again allude, uh, allude to this in the, in the Lord's table, the upper room, Matthew 26. All right. Jesus is preparing for a drastic cosmic change, a great, great change in the uh, leadership of, of God's people, no longer under just one nation, no longer under the government, no longer subscribing to ceremonial worship, which is only shadowy. All these things that were being offered there were commanded by God, but they were figures. They weren't reality. The reality is is the presence of the Holy Spirit that brings joy and it brings uh, and, and the seed of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is righteousness, true righteousness unto God. 
Um, so, uh, Jerusalem then, as we read from uh, Paul in Galatians, Jerusalem will become devastated. It'll become deserted. The Lord will, will desert her, and she will become as Hagar, who was not of the covenant of grace, but of the covenant of works. And that one remains in bondage. Again, if you fall from the covenant of grace, your only fallback is the covenant of works. And that's what's happening here with ferocity, with true justice. The Jerusalem temple is now being deconstructed. And that's why it says you throw it into the sea. In fact, all of the Old Testament is being de deconstructed nationally. The moral, that is, it is fulfilled in Christ, is being, is being promulgated forward. Jesus, the true and spiritual temple, will be a house of prayer for all peoples. And so when we, when we come together, we have to be sure that we are living out the commission of God and not doing anything else, but we are, we are here for communion with God. We are here to enjoy Him, His close proximity. He is in our midst. He's promised to be in our midst. And so our hearts should be receptive, but our hearts should be full of, encouraged to be full of faith that we might hear all of the promises, very encouraging promises, but then also be, be aware that we are under a covenant and if we are not found truly in the way of holiness, we have, we have to check to see if we've truly repented. We have to ask ourselves these questions. How will this be accomplished? Well, the question is, how is the fig tree withered? This will be accomplished. This new order will be accomplished by faith and will be accomplished by prayer. Mostly on the part of Jesus, who knows the will of God and he completes it. But the, the Lord's followers will say, Amen, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. For the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of God's glorious name, for the sake of the verity of his covenant of grace, this will happen. And perhaps even that night, as he woke up hungry and looking for some relief, maybe a sizable portion of that evening was, was spent in prayer preparing for these last days, as he announces the new state, the new, the cursed, the cursed state of Israel. Every disciple then must discern the presence of the kingdom in the preached word and its worship. And every disciple must learn and discern the kingdom's advance, its mission and its work. How? Well, we begin by learning the lesson, a very hard lesson. Again, the only destructive act of Jesus that we've seen so far. Learn now the lesson of the fig tree. That's how. That's how we discern the kingdom's advance. And we'll get more of that when we reach uh, Matthew 24. And it's by faith, knowing the scriptures, knowing the terms of how God relates to us. It's a covenant, an agreement, and God does not relate with any creature except with, I should even say, with, not even with, any, with creation, except by a covenant. And this is uh, exactly what we have here uh, in, uh, in, in this statement. Knowing the scriptures, especially God's promises and threats, and of course, through prayer, by faith asking God for wisdom. Christ, for us, is the very wisdom of God and our righteousness and our sanctification and all our redemption. 
And so if you pray in his name, he will, he will teach you and he will guide you uh, in the way of his kingdom, kingdom life, and what it consists of, what is worship about, what is the expansion of the kingdom about, how can we be blessed by God, how can we avoid spiritual desertion, or even the, this tremendous tragedy that happened to Israel. You know, there are churches, you see them in the, in the seven churches in Asia Minor. The Lord is threatening to remove their lampstand. What's going on? The same thing, is, it has gone on in every covenant arrangement. If the people are not really in communion with God, believing and listening to his voice and walking with him humbly and doing justice and mercy, not to, not to qualify for salvation, but to live out and express their salvation in Christ. Again, the covenant of works is very, very severe. It says, do this and do all of it and live. The covenant of grace says, live. You dry bones, without sinews, without muscle, without moisture, you scattered bones in the desert, by the breath of God now you live. And now, since you live, you walk in the newness of life. That's the covenant of grace. But if you don't find yourself walking, maybe you're still among those scattered bones. Maybe you're under the curse. Through prayer, faith, asking God for wisdom and insight, James 1, James guarantees that God will listen. But you can't be double-minded. You can't be of a mind to serve God and serve man. You can't be of a mind to serve God and serve self. You must die to self and live to God. Communion with God, then, that's what it is. In his holy temple, his new, his new body, the, the new continuing church that does afford fruit because the seed of the Holy Spirit is in it and the blessing of God is in it. And it provides shade and comfort for all creatures under God's heaven. That's what the church should be, fruitful and useful by the blessing of God. Let me conclude this preaching. Faith and prayer are essential for communion with God. Without faith and prayer, God's people break covenant with God, and they become accursed, not blessed. I'm not saying, again, disclaimer, I'm not saying that any true saint who has had union with Christ and has enjoyed communion at any time would ever lose that union and communion. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that many who are in the church are only topically, topically helped by the blessings ex, uh, external of the covenant. And these are subject, they are, they are threatened uh, unless they truly repent and come to terms with faith and true communion with God. And in, of that sort, there will always be in the church. So be on guard. Are you reading the scriptures? Do you know what the will of God is? Does this, what I'm saying to you, make some sense? I've introduced a lot of concepts here, but are you keeping up? Are, at least some portions of it, or are you eager, at least eager to go back home and say, no, that, you know, what prophecy is that in Daniel? How, how does the, the sea be a, a, an emblem of chaos? And what does that got to do with the mountain, the temple being destroyed? What is it? And what about the, the body of Christ? This, this language is a language that is peculiar and particular to God's people. God's people are a nation today. And all nations have their languages and their terms. And so if you are a citizen of heaven, 
this will be more and more increasingly familiar language to you. If you care about it, if, the, if God the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you will be uh, moved more and more to receive this teaching and more and more interested in giving God the glory by it. Can you discern the kingdom's advance in Jesus today? Do you, do you, do you rejoice when you hear the pure gospel preached? Or are you happy and just, oh, well, at least some kind of religion is going forth in Jesus' name. When you have a, a health and wealth prosperity that has nothing to do with repentance, nothing at all to do with obeying the Lord or, or understanding the work of Christ, our king, prophet, and priest, has nothing at all to do with any of that. And yet that is a, that's a religion that has captured the hearts of most of Houston. And are you, a, are you ashamed of that kind of false False gospel. We need to have some zeal for the Lord. Just like he had zeal, he cursed the hypocrite tree. What makes for weakness then and growth in the church? What makes it? It's God's blessing. We can do all kinds of things, but if the Lord is not in it, it avails. To, it's all vanity. It'll all amount to nothing. No fruit and no comfort of shade. And so we need to understand what things are here for our strength, what makes for our edification, our mutual encouragement. We need to be about the work of building the church according to God's Spirit, by his, not by strength and not by might, but by His Spirit. And we will need to know the Word and believe it for that and walk humbly with Christ. Now, my friends, all this is freely given to us in the gospel, which is believe on that one that was sent by God as our righteousness, who died in our place as a sinner, that we who are sinners indeed might live to God as righteous. He justifies us completely, perfectly by the blood of Christ. And then he gives us his spirit that we might walk in newness of life. He, he writes his law in our hearts so that we are in the spirit as much as, as possible compelled we cannot but follow Christ because we, we love his voice and we see his beauty. And, and as the scripture says, we cannot sin in that, in that sense. It grieves us. It would hurt us too much. It, it, no, Christ means all things to us. That's a Christian. And I just don't see that kind of a Christian ever being in jeopardy of being accursed. No, he will forever be blessed. And all your labors in the Lord are surely not in vain. He will bless you for all that you do out of love for him, in his name and by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we have explained a, a rather difficult and symbolic passage. We pray, Lord, that we have done it justice, that we have known your mind. Lord, we thank you that you are all in all, that you have replaced all that was merely shadowy in the Old Testament, its temple, its sacrifices, even its prayers and incense. Lord, you are all for us. We pray that today we might rest in you as those who have believed in you and having rested, walk with you humbly, yielding the fruit of righteousness that you so much love to see in your own people, in your own vineyard, your church. We bless you, Lynn, for this truth for being faithful to the will of God, Lord Jesus. And we, we ask, Lord, that you would bless us, that we might do the same. Through Jesus we pray, amen.
Let's have an offering. As you have given yourself to us, we first yield ourselves to you as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable duty. And Lord, we pray, Lord, as we enjoy this blessed communion, you giving us yourself, we giving ourselves to you, that we would be a fruitful marriage, that we would conceive, Lord, all manner of holiness and righteousness, mercy and justice. And may these gifts presented to you, Lord, uh, be in that vein, that your gospel may indeed bear fruit here and in other places. And we pray, Lord, your blessing, that it may be for your own glorious name's sake. And we pray it in Jesus. Amen. Our last hymn is number 674, I Need Thee Every Hour. <laughs> 